you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Disciple or hypocrite is what I've titled this. And interestingly enough, this is Jesus' last public sermon. This is His last public sermon before He will be taken and crucified and, and buried. And then, of course, we know three days later will be resurrected. But this is His last sermon to the masses. He speaks words and certainly speaks upon the cross and speaks before Pilate. But this is the last time that He is in that sermon position where the crowds have gathered and they're listening to Him. What does Jesus have to say in His last sermon? What would your last words be? You knew it was your last time to speak a message to those whom you influence, to those of whom have been trusted to you. Pretty interesting. This is probably what, not what you or I would have done. It's probably not the sermon that we would have given, not even sure that we should give it. But Jesus certainly did. And although so many times as the little story Pollyanna speaks to one of the pastors and she said, you know, I really like the happy parts of the Bible. And so do I. I like the happy parts, but this isn't one of those chapters. This wasn't a happy chapter. Uh, Jesus is about to go, and He makes a strong, challenging uh, oration here. He, he gives a very explicit message. And it boils down to this. It boils down to having the truth and not doing what was required with it. It has to do with basically what we call hypocrisy today. Now, let me define this for you right before we start. The difference between being a hypocrite and being hypocritical. Uh, because so many times we hear this, you know, you talk to people, I'm not going to church because all the hypocrites over there. Well, hey, guess what? We all do acts of hypocrisy. I do, you do, the person who says they don't come because there's hypocrites, uh, your neighbor, your saintly mother. We all do it, okay? Like someone, someone came to the door this week... I'm, my, my wife's not here today, so I'm going to do a confession right here. Uh, it's not about her. It's about me, okay? Somebody came to the door this week. Uh, I was pretty sure they were selling something. They were holding something. <clears throat> and I looked out the window, and I pretended like I wasn't there. They waited a long time, kept knocking, and I just waited them out. Uh, that was actually a hypocritical act. Sometimes the phone rings, and I hear it, and I don't pick it up. Pretend like I'm not there. That's why we have answer machines, ladies and gentlemen. You know what I mean? And that is a hypocritical act because I'm pretending to do something that I'm not. Now, I'm not even saying that's necessarily sin all the time. Most of the time it is, but in those instances, I choose to believe it's not. Okay? Because uh, it makes me feel better, and that's what I think. But hypocrisy is when we pretend like something is not happening, or we pretend or deny that something is occurring that we really know is true. It's not those instances where you slip up and make mistakes. It's those instances where you slip up and make mistakes and refuse to admit it. And this is not a political statement, okay? This is not a political statement whatsoever, so hold on to your cards and letters. But just, I'm just going to give you a couple that we've heard before. I'm not a crook. Now, you have to be a little bit old. You have to be over 40 to get that one, okay? That was Richard Nixon, okay? Or, you know, I want you to know... Uh, that I did not have sex with that woman. Okay? Now, we remember those quotes, and then we came back and they found, oh, yeah, that was true. Oh, yeah, we found out that actually, uh, well, I, 
I was being a hypocrite. That's what. Yeah, that's, that's basically what it is. When we know what the truth is and we seek to cover it up, we seek to deny or to let the light reveal the truth on our actions. So we all do hypocritical acts. The question is not do we sometimes do hypocritical acts. The question is are we hypocrites because we deny that we do those acts. And we pretend like they don't exist. And we say, that's not us. I don't do that. And nothing really makes the public or even us as Christians angrier than when someone vehemently denies something and we find out later on that it actually, in fact, was true. It literally steals the integrity from your character in a manner that you can't really replace completely. Jesus forgives, God loves, but most of us just don't forget how godly we are when we look someone in the eye and they look us in the eye and they lie to us and we ask them later on or we find out later on that they were looking straight at us and lying. Well, Jesus has a little problem with that too. And that's what He's addressing. Excuse me. Now, there's a group in society, and I want you to see if you can recognize who this is. This group believes that the, in the very core beliefs of Scripture. They're committed, committed to the letter of the law. They have fierce passion for the orthodoxy of our faith and of the Scriptures. They are famous for practicing their faith. They are open about it. They share it, and they seek to convert others. They're politically conservative. They are ready, readily will confess what they believe and what they stand for. They're critical of contemporary cultures. They also make a division between them and the world. They stand up strongly for what they believe in and believe it is right no matter what the cost. Now, if I ask you who do you think that group is, you might guess many different things. You may say, evangelicals, you may say Baptists or some other denomination. But what's interesting, Jesus takes this group and even though this was true of them, at the end of it, He just blasts them. Because you know who that group was? It was the Pharisees. So many times we like to tell the Pharisee jokes and we use them as an example of what not to do. And Jesus is going to do that right here in this sermon. He's going to say, now this is what you don't want to do. But it wasn't because they didn't know what was right. It wasn't because they didn't believe many things that were right. It wasn't because they didn't take a strong stand. It wasn't because they, didn't, they weren't conservative. It was because they chose to lie and be hypocritical about some of the things that they didn't do. And they were also, we'll see, they began to make rules and regulations out of the spirit of the law in order to control and exploit people. Now, as we read this passage, I think it's incumbent upon us to say, does this apply to me? There were four major groups in that day of, of the religious order. First of all, there were the Sadducees, and they were kind of the aristocrats. They were actually more of the ruling body. There was a smaller number of them, but uh, they were really doing just what I said before. They were really exploiting people. They were really kind of getting rich off the religion thing here. And uh, most people had very little respect for them. second group was a group uh, called the Essenes. And they had chosen to just remove themselves from society. They believed it was so corrupt 
And they believed that God wanted them to be holy. So much like the Amish, they separated themselves to an area where they could just be together and not be influenced by the outside world. Still, finally, another group uh, was called the Zealots. And we believe that Judas was probably a zealot. And what, it, what the Zealots did is they had a, a national agenda that Israel would be restored rightfully nationally to their place of power and honor and that the Romans would be kicked out. And so whatever it took for me to get where I need to be, for me to have complete freedom, that's what we need to do. And if that means misappropriating Scripture or using it in another manner, so will I do it. And we see how Judas easily got there. I really believe, and we don't know, but I really believe that money wasn't the primary uh, factor for Judas. It was he thought he was going to force Jesus into a kingdom movement. He would force him to become king. And then we get to the Pharisees. The real truth of it is their belief system isn't a whole lot different than many evangelicals in some ways. You know, there were four kind of groups of Pharisees. There was one called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And the reason they called them the bruised and bleeding Pharisees is because they would always try to close their eyes when they were in the presence of a woman, if they saw a woman coming. And that way, they would never stray, they would never sin in that matter. But the problem was, is apparently they would fall a lot and bump into things. And so they became known as the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And the point was, is they must be pretty godly. You can tell they always have a broke nose and bruises all over their body because they were attempting, in their own estimation, to be righteous and holy. Another one was the ever-seeking group, the ever-seeking Pharisee. And the ever-seeking Pharisees kept a meticulous list of all the deeds that they did, all the things that they did for, for uh, God, all the ways that they kept the law, and they kept an exhaustive list so they could know that they were going to be on the right page and that others could see it. And maybe one day when Jesus came back or whoever the Messiah, of course, they weren't accepting Jesus, whoever the Messiah was, they'd have their books ready. They would have proof of the life that they had lived. Then there was the wait-a-little-while Pharisees who simply always looked for that angle in the law to get out of it, whether it was giving or serving or helping the poor or whatever it was. They always had that little argumentation, that little, let's just wait, let's just see. I don't see it that way. They were always kind of turning it for their benefit. But there actually were those who really sought the heart of God. They were the God-fearing Pharisees. And we don't hear a lot about them, but we know that was probably true of Nicodemus, who came in John chapter 3 seeking Jesus. And then we fast forward to John chapter 19, and we see Joseph of Arimathea, who comes and takes the body of Jesus and puts it in his own tomb, even though it was probably a very expensive and a very prestigious spot. And we find out in John chapter 19 that Nicodemus assist Him. They were those who really sought the heart of God. They were seeking the kingdom of God. But then there were the others. Let's look. Jesus has three harsh statements to say. He uses the word, woe. You know, it's kind of like when you say to your children, one, two, three. I know you're not supposed to do that as a parent. I do that, by the way. And, um, and it works because... They got the attention. They know, hey, I've crossed the line. Jesus had seven, some scholars say eight, depending on how you read these. But I'm, going to give you, I'm just going to kind of title them to three. Number one, woe to you for slamming the door of the kingdom. 
slamming the door to the kingdom. In other words, you have prevented people from coming to know the real Messiah, the real Christ. By your countless legalistic deeds, by your requirements, he says, you put rules and regulations upon people, you force diets, you force the ceremonial law, and you tell people they can't really come to know God till they get to that point, until they observe all these regulations, all these burdens, and full well knowing that if they do all those things, at the end of the road, there's not living water, there's just more road. Because they had experienced it themselves. Secondly, woe to you for neglecting the most important matters. Jesus will affirm them for tithing, we'll see in a few verses, but, but not affirm them for not exercising justice and mercy and grace to those who are in need. The most famous one would be in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. Not looking for the opportunity to give grace, but instead looking for the opportunity to castigate and to criticize and to punish. And then thirdly, woe to you for looking only on the outside. For looking really good on the outside, for having a big, large print new Bible, for having the Christian t-shirt, for cleaning up real well, for having the big tassels that God had given them to wear in, in Numbers 15, phylacteries, which were little prayer squares that they would put on their shoulder and on their head. You look the part but you're not living the part. It's all about the image for you. Let's look in the Scriptures here in Matthew 23.1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the teachers of the law and of the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they have the position of authority. So you must obey them and do what they tell you. What's interesting to me is that Jesus tells them, you still must respect. Now, He's not saying, in, in, our, in our English, we sometimes miss this. He's not saying, whatever they say, you automatically do it. If it goes against the Word, word of God, you don't. But what He's saying, when they teach, when they stand before you and teach the Word of God, don't discount what they're saying simply because of what you see in their lifestyle. It doesn't change the truth of the Word of God. So I want you to respect them, respect the words that they are sharing, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They're not willing to be instruments of grace. They see people caught in the throes of sin, or they see people who fall away, and they simply sit back and watch. The Bible tells us in Galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus says, my burden is light. You know the reason it's supposed to be light is because we carry it with one another. Jesus was certainly an advocate of loving and caring and reaching out regardless of where people were. As we see, obviously, in John chapter 8. They tie up the heavy loads and they put these burdens on their shoulders and they themselves are not helping. Everything they do is to be seen as men. They make their phylacteries. And again, the phylacteries were 
black boxes, and really it was even started off, most scholars think, that it was really supposed to be more of a metaphor, more of a spirit, but somewhere around 600 B.C. the Jews began to use phylacteries, and they would put one on their, uh, on their wrist or their shoulder, sometime upon their hand, and then one on their forehead. And there would be, it'd be a blank box, and there'd be 12 stitches on it, to, uh, one stitch to represent each uh, of the tribes, and then there would be certain scriptures on there. It would certainly be the Shema, which is, Hear, O hear Israel, the Lord God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. They were, to, they were to wear those. They started wearing those during prayer times. And then somehow by the time of Jesus' time, it evolved where I just wore it everywhere. Every day I put my box on my head and on my shoulder, and it became kind of a symbol that I'm a, a holy man, and I don't miss prayer times, and I'm observing the Word of God. <clears throat> then Jesus talks about the tassels. In Numbers chapter 15, I believe it was, uh, the Bible tells us that God commanded the children of Israel to wear tassels uh, in 1538 and 39. And the tassels were on the end of their garment, had a blue cord, and the purpose of that was when they would see that, it would remind them of the commandments of God. It would remind them of how God delivered them and to maintain a life of, of purity. It's kind of one of those like the fish on your car kind of thing, to kind of give you a little accountability more than anything else and to remind you of who you are. <clears throat> and so they were asked to do that, but the Pharisees had taken it to a whole other level. They had a really big fish on their car. Matter of fact, they wore these really big fish and their tassels got bigger and bigger and they began to spin. And everybody knew, hey, here comes the religious person. Here comes the holy person. And we had the show, but not the transformation. Then he goes on and he says, <clears throat> They loved the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. And they loved to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. Rabbi was the most prestigious title for a teacher that could be given. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have not only one master, you are all brothers. You only have one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, you have one Father who is in heaven, nor to be called teacher, or really the vernacular would be there, the teacher, for you have but one teacher, Christ. So he gives three different descriptions, three different labels that we hear today. First one being rabbi, a great teacher. Someone of whom people would follow. Jesus was called a rabbi because a group of individuals would follow him and learn his ways. And that was very much what discipleship was in that day and age. They would find a rabbi or a great teacher and they would begin to follow him and they would begin to study unto him and then they would take his position on the interpretation of Scriptures. Thus, you see these different religious sects. You see even Pharisees arguing with each other. You even see these different branches of Pharisees. So, he said, you know what? Don't force that name rabbi. Now, let me tell you what this isn't talking about. Boys and girls and men and women. Doesn't mean that you don't call your mom and dad mom and dad or father. That's okay doesn't mean that we don't say Mr. and Mrs. This, first of all, is not in reflect to, te to uh, children giving respect to authority. Doesn't, it's not talking about the military or an organized structure where it's dependent upon your, uh, not only your obedience, uh, but your discipline. Okay, so that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, in everyday life, and particularly for the cause of Christ, for the cause of your faith, you are not to demand a title. Don't make it about you. You ever had those situations where, and I'm not talking, and this is a little out of the instance, where someone demands that they refer, you refer to them by the title? 
And I'm not, again, I'm not talking about in work. I, rem- I remember when I was um, one time at a, at a funeral, and I'll never forget this because I wanted to crawl under a hole, and I, I didn't want to be, be called a pastor for anymore, but I was doing a funeral with this individual, and part of the family came up and introduced and said, are you so-and-so? Called him by the first name and said, well, I'm a reverend. And I was just thinking, God, that sounds awful. Uh, so when they asked me, I wanted to say, I'm a servant. <laughs> I, I, because I just recognized how inappropriate and how bad that that sounded. See, the Pharisees had made an art out of it. You know, I've got my doctorate. I would really appreciate it. I'm not, matter of fact, I'm not going to respond to you if you don't call me Dr. Ron, Dr. Holton. I'd laugh at you if you called me that per- personally, okay? <clears throat> father. That title, Father, had kind of a divine nature to it. And it was the respect or it was the sense of, I am just a mere child and I don't know anything, but you're the Father. You should have complete authority, complete dominance over me. Isn't it interesting that Jesus never required a title? When they asked Him who He was, He told them He was the Son of God, but He never said, I'm a rabbi. I mean, you could see that His knowledge had far greater base than anyone else, but He never insisted on being called Dr. Jesus or the Teacher Jesus. Sometimes we need to kind of take a step back in in the world, and maybe the most important thing is not what people call us, but whom people believe that we are. It's easy for us to hide behind the title, behind the Mr. and the Mrs., the doctor, the master's degree, the college degree, I'm the boss label. Let me tell you this. When you start having to insist on people giving you a title, then you've lost the principle of what it means. When you demand from those who are other adults, and again, I'm not talking about the military. I'm not talking about children. I'm not talking about teenagers. When you start to demand that people call you by your title, you've missed it. You can say, I worked hard for that degree. I worked hard for that position. You missed it. You've become more intrigued and enthralled with what people think of you than what you've been called to do and what you've been called to be. And that certainly was true in the church world. Uh, This isn't the reason, but every time, you know, I always have people say, what should we call you? Well, let me tell you some things not to call me. Don't call me reverend. Don't call me preacher. Don't call me doctor. You don't need to call me any of those things. Matter of fact, you know what my favorite one is Ron. And I know for children you like them, but they can call me Pastor Ron. Okay? Or they want to call me Mr. Ron, that's great. But that's what I really like to be called. You know what? Unless you're in some kind of uh, position or your job requires it, that's a real good name for most of us. And maybe we shouldn't take quite the offense when we recognize that Jesus just kind of went by Jesus. Maybe it's not so bad. Moving right along. I know some of you are mad. God bless you. Thanks for coming. <clears throat> I'm just reading right here, by the way. Woe to you, teachers. And he goes on and he says, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of the he- heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, and you will make and you will let those not enter who are trying to enter. In other words, because of your persistent persistent legalism, because of the things that you are requiring of people before they can even encounter God, because you won't let them come before you, because you 
force them to recognize you and your titles. Because you tell them it has to be your way. And they have to go to your church. And they have to do your denomination. And they have to wear this set of clothes. You're keeping people out. Matter of fact, you're not making it and you're not allowing other people to come and experience the love and grace of Christ. You are turning them away. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel on land and sea to win a single convert. When he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell you are. Jesus, this is your last sermon! (laughs) Woe to you, teachers of the law and hypocrites and blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by the oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. You know, I told you about that group of Pharisees who were always kind of looking for the angle. How can I get out of it? Let's just wait and see. Well, certainly some of them began to do that. And they, they would make vows or they would make promises. But it's kind of like they didn't say, so help me God, or I swear upon the Bible that sometimes people say, and they go, well, you know, when I did that, you know, I didn't make the absolute swear. So they kind of left a provision, if this doesn't really work out well for me, I can get out of it. And it's not really lying. Of course, we know Jesus has already said in, uh, in His great uh, other sermon here in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 in the, Beatitude, excuse me, in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. If you tell somebody something, then you're accountable. Okay? So you don't get to say, I didn't swear. <laughs> I didn't say this. I didn't write it down. Jesus said, you're a hypocrite when you do that. Let your yes be yes. Keep your word. Show integrity. Which is greater? You may also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the offer, he is bound for it. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the offer? The gift is sacred. Therefore, he swears by the altar, swears by everything before it. He goes on in verse 21. He who swears by the temple... Swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. Part of this, and there is some debate by some of the scholars, is commitments that people made in the synagogue, people commitments that people made in the temple. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits in it. In other words, you are bound, whether it's outside the church or inside the church, you are bound by your words. It doesn't matter what code you enlist upon it. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, but you have neglected the most important matters of the law, of the justice, of the mercy, and faithfulness. You, have, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. You strain out a gnat and swallow the camel. You know what Jesus does? He says, I want to affirm you for tithing. I want to affirm you for doing that. And you're tithing on everything that you get. I want to affirm you for doing that. But let me say this. You've missed a bigger principle. You're giving, but yet your life is ripping people off. You come and you give of what you've received, but you also rip people off in order to get. He said you've missed the issues of mercy and justice. Interesting to use the word mercy. Even if that was... People that their fellow countrymen that they were foreclosing on or however they were taking advantage of them, he said, instead of exercising some mercy, you think, well, this will be more that I get and more that I get for the kingdom. And he's saying, you've missed the biggest principle of all. Mercy and justice. 
doing what is right. Sometimes, you know, every once in a while I see people do this. They will give faithfully to the church, but then they have something else that they're just kind of mired in and they're stuck in. It's almost like I'm going to pay God off over here. I'm going to do this, God, for you, but then this piece of my life you're not going to get. I'm going to pay you off. Jesus is pretty harsh on that mindset. And then He says, Woe to you teachers and laws. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees and hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean. Don't get so consumed with what you look like, with what you show, with what you say. It's who you are that really makes the impact. I want us to do a little reality check here for just a moment. and I want to summarize this into four points. Make it real simple here. Number one, do a reality check for you. Am I, am I a hypocrite? Here's a, good, here's a good reality check for you. Number one, am I honest? Am I honest and straightforward with our dealings not only in the house of God, but in my own house and in the work day? Number two, am I helpful? Do I just come and expect others to always do everything and I'm just here? You ought to be lucky I'm here. Jesus had some pretty harsh things to say about those who made the harsh statements, who granted the criticisms of, of His kingdom and those who were attempting to make an impact, but yet did nothing to help in the process. Number three, are you humble? Let me tell you this. A growing Christian is someone who the more that I grow, the more I think like Jesus and talk about Jesus, and the less I think and talk about myself. That's the mark of, of maturity in Christ. The impact that Jesus has over our language, over our thought process, and over our dealings. We can accumulate a lot of knowledge. These guys had an extensive amount of knowledge, but it didn't translate into their lives. And number four, are you a hypocrite? I'm not asking you, do you ever do anything wrong? I'm asking you, do you admit it when you do? Do you confess it before God? When someone asks you, are you willing to admit, I made a mistake? Do you take that opportunity when sometimes you see that you've been wrong? Do you go and make that correct? Do you seek restitution? Or do you just hide behind the mask because it might cost you financially or in some other manner? Now again, it's easy for us to just kind of take off on the Pharisees and go, well, Adam, not like those guys. And anytime we see that word. But the truth of it is there's a little Pharisee in all of us. The truth of it is there's a lot that's real similar about them and about us as evangelicals. And also there's a truth that there were guys who chose that profession, so to speak, chose that faith that were good guys. I think about Nicodemus, who had been taught one way all his life. He would started out with a group who really meant well, who really meant to do what was right, and somehow it got twisted and turned around to where I'm following laws and I'm simply enjoying my position. And I like being in the seat of power. Nicodemus went and sought the truth. And later on received the truth. We know Paul was a Pharisee. But God spoke to him. I think God spoke to him because he knew that in his heart he was trying to do what was right. But had gotten it twisted. And then, of course, Joseph of Arimathea. When all the disciples were gone... And when everyone was afraid, who stepped up? Joseph of Arimathea, who was probably a part of the high leadership of the Pharisees. This probably cost him greatly. 
probably cost him much respect. Probably he never politically advanced. He became ostracized from many of his friends. He certainly took great financial costs with what he did. But I believe he was what Jesus would call a disciple. Because in Matthew 16, 24, this is how Jesus defines what a disciple is. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For he who wants to save his life would lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Paul said, yeah, I've been raised in that church. I've been raised in this religion, but I recognize that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And I want to receive Him no matter what the cost. So I'm going to pick up the cross, no matter what it costs me, financially, socially, emotionally. That's what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. I'll never forget, my college reunion is coming up here soon. And about ten years ago, I went back to a little college alumni deal. And we had gotten a new president. And there were new people there, and I didn't really know. I came in a little late. And I remember getting on the elevator and met this guy. Uh, and he was a nice guy. And he was in a suit. And I asked him what his name was. And he told me his name was, was Rory. And so we talked for a few moments. And I said, well, it was very nice to meet you. And, uh, and he was just as kind and gentle and... And uh, I just never forget, he just told me, just Rory, that's your name. I said, well, Rory? And uh, we talked for a little while. I didn't ask him what he did. He asked me a little bit about myself. I'll never forget, I got to that little alumni function, and I found out that uh, I had ridden up with the president uh, of my college. He'd been there for a year and made a lot of positive, positive changes. But you know what always stuck in my mind, and he's gone now, but you know what always stuck in my mind is, he said, my name's Rory. And he kind of shared how he just served and worked for the school. Never told me he was president. Never told me that he had two doctorate's degrees, two PhDs. Never told me how successful he had been. Just chose to tell me about how he had been called to serve. Never forgot that. Made a big impression on me. And while I don't even know him, I will always have respect. Because he talked to the kid in the elevator who didn't know any better. But his message was, I'm a servant. What about you this morning? What's the message of your life? I always ask those in work, in your neighborhood, in your home, who is this guy? Who is this woman? What would they tell me?